If you have your Bible, turn to uh, the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter number 6 tonight. Uh, We're going to be continuing our series, Theology for Life. And uh, we're going to be focusing on the theology of God again tonight. So far we've talked about His triune nature. He's three persons, but one being. We focused on God's omnipotence. He's all-powerful. And tonight we're going to study the holiness of God. The holiness of God. What does holiness mean in the Bible? Our word for holiness comes from a, a Hebrew word, which it doesn't seem to make sense with the word holiness at first, but, but after I explain it, it'll make sense. The Hebrew word means to cut. So when holiness is referring to God's person in Scripture, it, it's meaning to portray the fact that God is cut off or separated from everything else. Meaning this, he's in a class of his own. He's not standoffish. Praise the Lord for that. But he is separate from us. He's cut off from us in every way. He transcends you and he transcends me. We don't even get close. He's distinct from anything or anyone that he's ever created. We can't categorize God like say God is like this or Or God is like that because there is literally nothing in all the universe that he's like. Like he can't be compared to anything adequately. Second, to be holy doesn't mean to be cut off or separated from his creation and transcendent of his creation. It also means to be completely pure all the time and in every way possible. God is completely pure. That means this. God is in a moral category of his own, a moral category of his own. And this isn't just an aspect of God. Friend, listen, this is the essence of God. In other words, he's holy in every way and in everything he does. He's holy in justice. He's holy in love. He's holy in mercy. He's holy in power. He's holy in sovereignty. He's holy in wisdom. He's holy in uh, patience. He's holy in anger. He's holy in grace. He's holy in faithfulness. He's holy in compassion. He's even holy in his holiness. I believe the best picture we have to understand God's holiness and then to work it into the application of our daily lives is taken from Isaiah 6. Of course, there's Plenty of other passages that talk about the uniqueness of God, the holiness of God. But I think this one allows us to stay in one text tonight and see a picture of God on his throne, high and lifted up, and the angels around him singing, holy, holy, holy. Then we get to see Isaiah's response to seeing this vision from the Lord. And and that helps us to know how to apply God's holiness to our daily lives. So let's jump in. The first thing we learn from Isaiah 6 is this. God is holy, holy, holy. Just to make sure you're awake, would you say this out loud with me? God is holy, holy, holy. Look at verses 1 through 4. In fact, let's just do this. Let's just, instead of reading it at large, let's just break it down phrase by phrase. Look at the first phrase. Open your Bible. Look at the first phrase. In the year that King Uzziah died. That might just seem like like a, 
a simple setup phrase, but it's actually really important to the entire context of the passage. The date 70, 40 BC probably doesn't mean anything to you, but to Isaiah's original readers, the date marked the end of an era. See, King Uzziah had been a fixture in Israel for 52 years as their king. And for most of those years, it was good years, peaceable years. So when leprosy finally took this king's life and his long reign came to an end, the country was thrown into incredible turmoil. I mean, imagine what it would be like if we had the same president for 52 years and we felt secure with him and accustomed to his policies and everything's operating in the United States like clockwork, then suddenly every television channel interrupts programming with the news from Washington that our president of 52 years is unexpectedly dead. We'd be in turmoil. That's what happened in Israel. When Uzziah died, the nation's moral climate went into a tailspin. People began to think, man, if I'm going to make it in this crazy culture, I'm just going to have to do it on my own. I'm going to have to just do what I think is right in my own mind. In the midst of all this moral confusion, God called Isaiah to speak for him. That's why it's important. Because in the midst of all of this, God comes to Isaiah and puts a call on his life. And that's what this scene is all about. Look at the next phrase. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. Think of the significance of those four words. I saw the Lord. Who could ever be the same after seeing the Lord? Now, whether he was waking or or sleeping or whether he had a, a vision or a dream, we're not really told. But Isaiah was supernaturally allowed to see the very throne room of God. And notice the word Lord, it's not in all caps. If it was in all caps, it would be referring to God's covenant name, Yahweh. But here, Lord is lowercase, referring not to God's name, but to his position. Isaiah is saying saying this, I saw the ultimate monarch. I I saw the sovereign of the universe. I, I saw the ruler over everything. I saw the Lord. Notice what Isaiah saw him doing in the next phrase. I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. He saw God sitting. Not pacing back and forth. Not wringing his hands. Not struggling or searching. God was settled. God was in control. Even though the nation of Israel was spinning out of control upon the death of Uzziah. This confirms, friend, that he's holy and separate from us. He's never worried. He's never nervous. Boy, I love the song we sing here in church often. It has the line in it. And right now, in the good times and bad, you are on your throne. You are God alone. When I sing that song, I think of this scene in Isaiah. God is sitting on the throne. He's in control. I don't know about you, but that seems to put into perspective any burden I carry on my heart tonight. I mean, how difficult could my problem be for God, no matter how monstrous it seems to me? What problem would seem so large to the one who is sitting down? The one, literally, who is sustaining this world. If he were to take but a millisecond off, we would fry. We would crumble. 
Everything would come crashing down. And yet he's not so distracted with that, that he is overseeing the burden you brought to church with you tonight. He's still just sitting. Think about your biggest worry right now. He's controlling it. Think about the biggest issue you think our world faces tonight. He is sovereign over that issue and every other issue in the world at the same time. Why are we so nervous? He's sitting on his throne. Do you believe it tonight? He's sitting on his throne. Isaiah said he's sitting on a throne that is high and lifted up. He's not just sitting on any ordinary throne. I'm trying to give you a picture of what he saw. His throne is high and lifted up. I believe the main reason the church and Christians today have lost their moral vision altogether is because they've lost their high and exalted view of God. One writer said this, we've embraced the comfort of his nearness, but at the expense of his transcendence. We've embraced the comfort of his nearness, but at the expense of his transcendence. I got news for you. God is not the man upstairs. He's not an old codger with a white beard. God is the creator and and sustainer of the universe. He is high and lifted up and we need to see him that way. Individually and corporately as a church. Look what else Isaiah saw at the end of verse 1. He saw that God's train filled the temple. The train, that's a part of the robe that communicates honor. The train seldom seen today because... Uh, at formal weddings, they, they don't normally have these as much anymore. It doesn't seem like they're in style back in the day. A lot of ladies wore trains on their dresses. It was a symbol of grandeur and royalty. They say that if you've ever seen the video clip of the coronation of, of Queen Elizabeth many years ago at Westminster Abbey, you'd remember that the train of her robe went all the way down the aisle and almost back to the door of that cathedral. They said it took... Several attendants to carry the train of her robe during her coronation. Yet what does Isaiah say about the robe of Almighty God? He says it fills the temple. Down the aisle and back again. Back to the front and front to back. Doubling and redoubling. Do you get it? The symbol of God's splendor entirely fills this temple. Verse 2, he said above it. Stood the seraphims. The seraphims are the angels that exist in the throne room who instantly do the bidding of Almighty God. One man said that they're constantly standing to serve the seated sovereign. Now we have more questions than answers when it comes to this group of angels. But Isaiah intentionally describes their wings. He said they have six wings. Why six? Most think two to cover their faces or else they would see the glory of God and die. Think about that. They're always serving the Holy One, but they're never able to look upon the Holy One. Two wings to cover their feet, which most think symbolize their lowliness. Just like when Moses encountered God through a burning bush, what did he do? Took off his shoes. This is holy ground. With two more wings, they flew. It's interesting that four of their six wings are for relating to God. Only two are for serving him. The verbs covered 
and the verb fly are continuous action in verse number two. It's an interesting study. The angel's motion is ceaseless as they fulfill with precision every wish of Almighty God. They just don't stop flying and they don't stop serving. And there's something else they don't stop doing. They don't stop in, in doing. They don't stop speaking. And crying out as they hover around God's throne. Look at verse number three. And one cried unto another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. Can you picture two groups of seraphim angels singing this chorus back and forth? One line of seraphim angels say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the other line says back, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is called an antiphonal chorus. It's where there's alternate singing between two groups of people. Our our choir actually sings an antiphonal chorus, a song called, Is He Worthy? The soloist sings a question and the choir answers that question. Here's the thing about this antiphonal chorus between these two groups of angels. It never ends. The praise never ceases. It goes on and on and on through countless eons of time. You know what this makes me think about? It makes me think about people who sarcastically criticize worship music that repeats itself. They they call them 7-11 choruses. Seven words, 11 times. Well, God not only appreciates repetition, repetition, but he's ordained the endless, changeless chorusing of a single line of certainty. When the truth is significant, there is great power in repetition, especially if the subject is about an attribute of God. So before you criticize Old or modern worship songs that say the same thing over and over. Make sure you meditate on Isaiah 6. And you can't help but notice that they repeat the word holy three times. In the Hebrew language, when someone was writing or speaking and they wanted to emphasize something extra, they would repeat the word. That, that happens several times in Scripture But it normally only happens where a word is repeated twice. Like Jesus often said, verily, verily. We never read of an attribute of God repeated three times. And it's interesting that that the only attribute that gets this much emphasis is God's holiness. The angels aren't crying. Loving, loving, loving is the Lord God of hosts. Though He is loving. They cried, holy, holy, holy. You know why? Because holiness is the central and defining essence of God's character. Think about it. If love was at the center of God's nature, then he could have welcomed us into heaven without the atoning death of his son, Jesus, because sin wouldn't be a big deal. It's all love. But the fact is, God's holiness demanded that sin be paid for, and then his love compelled him to pay the price himself. Boy, I don't know if you're staying alert for this, but it's really good stuff. This throne room, I think, is an incredibly vivid picture of the holiness of God. And you know what it does in Isaiah's life? It totally lays him out. It wrecks him completely, which should speak to us carnal people 
who hear and read and sing about the holiness of God and we fall asleep. And we yawn. And I'm not saying tonight. I'm saying just in general. We sing about the holiness of God. How dare we ever raise our hand to him. We, 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 we hear preaching and, and see a text about the holiness of God. And it should cause us to sit on the edge of our seat. This is the central defining characteristic of our God. This is the thing that ought to, ought to arrest our attention. Did you say the holiness of God? But oftentimes we treat it as just any other attribute. When if you see the posture of Isaiah in just a moment, you're going to realize that if he was here sitting on a seat, his posture would be very, very, very alert. If he was singing, holy, 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 Lord God, almighty God, in three persons, blessed Trinity. If he was singing that old hymn, he would probably be weeping. Probably hands to the air or better yet feet or knees, I mean, to the ground. But there's something about modern Christianity that yawns at the holiness of God. We we get more fired up. We get more mushy about the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. But when we pull out an old 1800 song about the holiness of God. It's like, when are we going to get to the good stuff? And that can't be. That can't be. And I'm going to show you why. Isaiah's response teaches us why the holiness of God is so important and how it ought to wreck us. Point two, the holiness of God allows us to see ourselves and our sin appropriately. In other words, if we don't see the holiness of God and reverence it, we will not see ourselves for who we really are. We will always give ourselves more credit than we are due. We will always think ourselves to be more righteous than we really are if we don't daily see God's holiness. Verse 5. Then said I, woe is me. You see the word woe in the Bible? That, that is a word of cursing. Doomed am I, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah doesn't give us a lot of uh, editorial comments about his visit to the throne room. He, he doesn't brag about what he saw. He's almost immediately filled with this sense of doom and and dread and fear. He's overcome with his own sinfulness. It's only when you see God for who he really is that you can see yourself for who you really are. Because next to God's holiness, you and I are completely undone and unclean. But here's the challenge to seeing ourselves correctly. Here's the challenge. Sin is very deceitful. It not only blinds you, but it also presents itself as something less than sinful in your life. Come on, let's admit it. Sin doesn't always seem sinful to us. 
It often looks more beautiful and pleasurable than it looks dangerous and destructive. If you're eating your third piece of chocolate cake in a moment of gluttony. At that moment, you're not experiencing destruction and danger. You're experiencing the taste of deep, rich chocolate wrapped in silky buttercream, right? The pleasure of that moment overwhelms your sense of sinfulness in the moment. When you're on your cell phone trashing somebody's reputation behind their back. You don't think about the moral transgression at that moment of wronging a brother or sister. Instead, you're carried along by the buzz of vindication you get for making someone you disagree with look worse than yourself. When you're lusting after a woman that's not your wife, you're taken up with fantasies of possessing her physical beauty for your own pleasure. When you're attempting to become emotionally connected to a man that's not your husband, You're consumed with filling a void in your heart that's been aching for a long time. You're not thinking about the horribly immoral violation of that moment. Sin doesn't seem that bad. See, temptation's seductive power is that it distracts us from pleasure so that we'll fail to see sin's moral danger. But it gets worse because sin doesn't just look, look okay on the front end. Sin is just as deceitful on the back end. Somehow sin doesn't even seem as sinful after the fact. Even when our conscience is a bit bothered by transgressing God's moral holy boundaries, we quiet our conscience with self-atoning arguments. Are you listening? We participate in our own deceit by working to convince ourselves that the wrong we did wasn't so wrong at all. We go back and rewrite the narrative of the moment to make ourselves look more righteous than we really are. As a result, we walk away feeling okay about something God is not okay with. Something that is a repudiation of His holiness. Friend, you are in moral danger when you're able to minimize or deny the inexcusable sinfulness of your sin. Sin is deceitful. Sin hinders us from seeing our own sinfulness like we should at the front end of it, in the middle of it, and after it's all said and done. So how do we see sin for what it really is? Well, you and I will only understand the sinfulness of our sin when we understand that every sin of ours is a sin against a holy God. David got it right after his gigantic sin of adultery and then lying and covering up. He said against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Every sin is a sin against God himself. Every act of unholiness is a rebellion against God's holiness. And any time you or I work to make our sin seem less than sinful, we betray him. The disobedience of a child, listen, it's more than just disrespect toward parents. It's a rebellion against God and his holy standard. But parents, your children don't know that. You have to teach them. And you don't teach them that by getting mad at them because they disrespected your authority. 
You, you, you teach that by, by patiently and clearly and straightforwardly teaching them that you're an extension of God in their life and, and that when they disobey your authority, they just haven't disappointed you as a parent. They've broken the heart of a thrice holy God. How do we instill the fear of God in our kids? We make obedience more than just about us. We connect their disobedience to a holy God. We don't just connect it to a consequence. You're going to get your phone taken away. Give me the keys to that car. All of that is fine and dandy. And you do what the Lord leads you to do in disciplinary actions. I believe in it. But that is not the end. If that's the end, you create a bunch of robots until they're 18 and then they get the remote control themselves and they'll go crazy. You want to develop a kid that loves and fears God? You teach them from as small as you possibly can that their disobedience is against God first. They should fear disappointing God when they're a teenager more than they fear disappointing dad. The lack of marital love between a married couple is not just a relational violation between a husband and a wife. It dishonors a holy God. A moment of backbiting gossip. Did you hear me? A moment of backbiting gossip doesn't just hurt other people. It goes against the holiness of God who created that person or those people in his image. You and I will only have, ever have hearts that are broken by our sin when we acknowledge the, the verticality of our sin. Only when we, we stand with Isaiah before the Holy One on the throne and we become in awe of His holiness will we see sin for what it really is. What does that look like practically? Well, I suggest every one of us find a place where we can be all by ourselves. Where we can turn off our screens. Where we can cut all the noise and cut all the distraction. Where we can get down on our knees. Where we can open up our Bible. And where we can begin to talk to the Lord about the sinfulness of our sin. Every once in a while, clear off a space. Where you just get on your knees before God and you confess to Him some things. You confess to Him that you minimize sin. You confess to him that you've learned to live with sin. You confess to him that you have made friends with sin. You confess to God that you hide sin. You confess to God that you deny sin. You you confess to God that you often explain sin away in your life. And you as a child of God learn like Isaiah to weep over your own sinfulness. To say like the prophet, woe is me. When is the last time? Just you and God. Just, just you and God. And you weep. Not for anybody else, but for the sin of your own heart. You weep. Most of us are really good at saying woe is him. And woe is her. And woe is that church. And we are not as good at getting on, on our knees in the throne room of God and saying, woe is me. If more pastors and more church members would be in the posture of humility and brokenness over their own sin. And they would say, woe is me more often than we wouldn't point fingers as much. We wouldn't see the speck in our brother's eye when we have a log in ours. We would be serious about our own sin. 
Paul David Tripp says it well. You cannot confess what you do not grieve. And you cannot grieve what you have not seen. Let that sink in. If you don't see your sinfulness, you won't grieve over it. If you see your sinfulness but try to minimize it, you won't grieve, therefore you won't confess it. You know if you have kids, they don't genuinely confess and repent until they're brought to a point of grieving. They might feign it because they want to get over the consequences of their sin as quickly as possible. But genuine confession and repentance always comes on the tail end of grief. That's why the Apostle Paul calls repentance godly sorrow. Sorrow. Godly sorrow. You don't win victories over your sin until you are sorry about it. Until you grieve about it. Until you mourn over it. Until you weep over your own sin. I'm talking about basic stuff. When is the last time we weeped because we realized we are a chronic complainer? We weeped over that sin. When is the last time we weeped because we're spiritually lazy? When is the last time we weep because we're indifferent about the Bible? When is the last time we weep because the Holy Spirit showed us we're a gossip? When is the last time your gossip make you cry? How about your discontent? How about the way you treat your wife? Or the way you treat your husband? Or the way we parent our kids or spend our money? Or the way we withhold giving God a tithe and an offering? When is the last time that these so-called respectable sins in our life are something we no longer tolerate? But there's something that we see as an offense and a violation that runs up against a a thrice holy God. You cannot confess what you don't grieve. And you cannot grieve what you have not seen. It's not the end of the story. Praise the Lord. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. The holiness of God prepares us to receive the transforming grace of God. The key word in these verses is the first word of verse number 6. The word then. Praise the Lord for the word then. I mean, how tragic would it be if I ended the chapter right now and said, okay, that's the holiness of God. Now go deal with it. We would all be depressed. We would walk out saying, woe is me. And there's no good news to that. Instead, one of the seraphim flew to Isaiah with a burning coal in his hand, touched his unclean lips and purged his sin. What's the lesson here? Here it is. We are only prepared to receive and comprehend the grace of God when we have understood his infinite holiness and our incredible sinfulness. Oh, hear me, please, church. Any presentation of the gospel from a pulpit, in a a tract, 
or in a witnessing conversation, any presentation of the gospel that leaves out the truth that is on that screen is incomplete. It is the holiness of God that cast us upon his grace. You cannot understand your need of grace until you understand how pitifully your sin lines up against God's holiness. This is why we're very, very cautious in our process of leading a child through the gospel. Believe me, I'm all about children getting saved. All about it. But we must be cautious because they can't get saved just because they realize God loves them. They must get saved when they realize they've sinned against a God that loves them and that God is holy and he won't tolerate it. If salvation means faith and repentance, then kids need to know that they need to repent. In order to know that they need to repent, they need to understand the depravity of their own soul. They don't just need to say, I'm ready to ask Jesus into my heart. It goes a little bit deeper than that. I'm glad for kids that say, I'm ready to ask Jesus into my heart. I really am glad about that. But they need to do it as a result of encountering a holy God and their own unholiness. Here's the good news. When you come to God with brokenness and humility over your sin, he will meet you every time with his forgiveness. Every time. What Isaiah experienced from the altar in that moment was symbolic of the sacrifice of Jesus once for all. And I'm telling you, the forgiveness of Christ can be yours in a moment if you embrace by faith the forgiveness God offers through his work on the cross. Woe is me. Yes, yes. Woe is me. But praise the Lord for his amazing grace. After this scene, Isaiah responds to the Lord's forgiveness in his life. Look at verse 8 and we'll be done. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. Holiness of God brings us to a place of surrender and service. Remember, this is Isaiah's call. He didn't hesitate. He didn't respond to God's call in his life with with any ifs, ands, or buts. He doesn't offer excuses. He doesn't negotiate with God. The holiness of God formed in Isaiah's heart a willingness to do whatever God wanted him to do. Friend, those who've seen and comprehended God's holiness, they've admitted their own sinfulness, and they've received God's grace, will always have a desire and willingness to do whatever they have to do in order to spread the news of God's holiness and grace to other people. For those of us who've encountered God's holiness and been changed as a result, we should wake up every single day and say like Isaiah, here am I, send me. Send me to my family. Send me to my co-workers. Send me to my church. Send me to my community. Send me to my students. Send me to my, my waiter. Send me to my waitress. Send me to my customer. Send me to my client. Send me to my patient. Send me to my doctor. Send me to my nurses. Every day we should be in such awe of God's holiness and how it's changed our lives that we are compelled to take it to everybody we can. Would you go to Romans chapter 1 and I'll be done. God willing, we'll preach through Romans after the book of Acts. Romans chapter 1. 
Paul had been changed by God's amazing grace. Two sermons from now in Acts, we're going to talk about that. As a result of encountering God's holiness, his own sinfulness, and receiving God's forgiveness, look at Paul's attitude. Verse 14. I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Like Isaiah, Paul was so overwhelmed with how a holy God could love and transform such an unholy man. And you know Paul was an unholy man. He knew his Old Testament, but he also knew how to murder Christians. He was messed up, dude. And God met him with his grace. And Paul said, you know what? I'm indebted. If God is going to change me, and he has, then I've got to take the same gospel to people that, were one, that are just like I once was. That tells me when we lack evangelistic passion in our lives or in our church, it's probably because of the fact that we've lost sight of our own sinfulness and how God's grace met us where we were and changed us. We, we've forgotten somewhere along the way what a holy God did in our life. And so you know what? We go to work to make money. That's what we go to work for. We go to work to get the next promotion. That's what we live for. We posture ourselves in people's lives to get attention. We love that feeling. We become consumed with temporal success and wealth. We come to church and sit and let everyone else serve. Let everyone else give. Let everyone else sacrifice. Why? Because people that don't realize how God's changed their life or they lost sight of it somewhere along the way, they aren't in a, in a posture of surrender and service. They're in a posture of receiving. Even worse, even worse. We become really good at saying woe to the world and woe to the church and woe to all the universities out there and, and woe to all the politicians. But we never follow those woes with here am I, Lord, send me. Send me to the world. Send me to serve in the church. Send me to reach those college students. Send me to at least pray for the politicians. We want to condemn the darkness instead of bringing light to it. That's why I often warn Christians of listening to a bunch of radio talk shows and podcasts. I'm very serious. All they do is point out wickedness and bemoan it. They do nothing to change it. And as a result of feasting on that information, hear me, Christians have gotten in the habit of seeing the wickedness of everyone around them, but they're rarely compelled to bring light to it or make a difference. I'm not saying it's altogether wrong to be informed by some of those outlets, but it can be dangerous when they influence you to do more complaining about the world than evangelizing the world. The greater point is that those who see God's holiness and those who've experienced God's forgiveness will always be the ones who are in a daily posture of surrender, dying to themselves, picking up their cross and following Jesus. If you, Christian, have turned inward, inward, and you can't remember the last time your heart was burdened for the lost. 
then there's a good chance you can trace it all the way back to the fact that you have forgiven, I mean, you've forgotten what a holy God has done in your life. If you have become a victim of everyone else's treatment of you or your circumstances or whatever the case might be, somewhere along the line, you have went from a posture of surrender to a posture of being the victim, self-pity. And people that realize how much a holy God has absolutely wrecked their life in a good way and they don't get over it, never come to church and go like this. They come to church and they go like this. They never come to church and go like this. They come to church and go like this. They never leave complaining, they leave praising. Because people who realize they have been given by God so much more than they deserve are not entitled people. Not territorial people. Not overly opinionated people. Not easily offended people. They are in the posture of here am I, Lord, send me. Woe is me, I'm nobody. I am broken, I'm unclean, I'm undone. And God, I have forgotten that somewhere along the way. And help me, to for, help me to never, ever forget again that you owe me nothing. Help me to never forget that. To sum it up, God is holy, holy, holy. And our church ought to see him as such. When we do, it'll transform the way we see ourselves. We won't see ourselves as pretty good. We'll see ourselves as really sinful. And that won't be despairing because we understand that when we lean into the grace and mercy of God for our sin, he will give to all of us forgiveness and mercy and grace and love. And a result of receiving that grace, we're going to want to pass it along to other people. It's just an amazing cycle. See God for who he is. See yourself for who you really are. Run to God's grace and receive it and go give it to others. Go back to the throne room of God tomorrow morning. See God for who he is. See yourself for who you really are. Lean into God's grace to cover your sin. And then take that grace to everybody you're in contact with that day. And on Friday morning, go back to the throne room of God and see him for who he is. So you can see yourself for who you are. So you can lean into his grace and receive it. And so you can take it to work on Friday. Come on. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Would you stand to your feet? Let's do.